What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. So excited to have you here, even more excited for a guest this week. You know, I got to say, I recorded this interview a while ago, actually, uh, months ago. We have been just jammed. And going back, I'm doing the intro like the night before you could hear this. And I'm kind of amazed at that conversation that we had. I, I just had to step back and think how lucky I am sometimes to be able to speak with these people because our guest this week, I mean, he's not only fascinating, but what he talks about is just a real joy and something that I know you're going to like because I get emails on this topic all the time. Before we get into that, I'm going to make this quick, but if you like the show and you want some cool extras like ad-free episodes, early notification of guests, the ability to ask guests questions, direct access to John and I, free books, and a lot more, become part of the Smart People community. Head on over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. That's patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast and support the show. For two bucks, five bucks, ten bucks a month, you get some great perks, you show us some love, and when we get to 50 patrons, we're going back to weekly episodes. So if you want some more smart people in your world, head on over and for two bucks, you can help us get closer to that goal so that we can talk to more people like our guest this week, Rich Carlgard. Now, Rich is the publisher of Forbes magazine and is based in Silicon Valley. He is a renowned lecturer, pilot, and author of four acclaimed books. 
But I think we got him on here talking about the book that is going to resonate the most. It is called Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. This one resonated with me because I do believe we are pushing people too much, really just pushing them at too early of an age. I mean, my wife is a kindergarten teacher and she has to test kids multiple times a year in kindergarten on things like reading and math and all this. It's just getting out of control. Everyone's so worried about their SATs and Ivy League schools and getting the best job. And look, I travel all around the country and, and talk to people in organizations and sometimes I just fear that people are being pushed to the brink to figure it all out, succeed at all costs, and do it early. Well, there's good news. A lot of us, in fact, most of us, do not explode out of the gates in life. And that is what our guest, Rich Carlgaard, is here to talk about. Although he had a mediocre academic career, he said he went to Stanford, which he got into as a fluke, but then he couldn't get a job and he couldn't keep a job. It took him quite a while to get a grasp on his life and eventually become the publisher of Forbes magazine and very successful by most standards. His book, Late Bloomers, is all about the scientific explanation for why so many of us bloom later in life and why it's okay to not know everything we want to do right now. Additionally, in this episode, we talk about what it's like to essentially publish one of the coolest magazines ever and a lot more about Rich's incredible life. I am so excited to bring you this episode with Rich, so I'm going to let you go ahead and tune in. Here it is, our episode with Rich Carlgaard about his new book, Late Bloomers. Enjoy. Well, first, Rich, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on Smart People Podcast. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm delighted to be here with you. I got to say, I really am honored just in that, you know, as the publisher of Forbes magazine, I, I can't even tell you how much of my life has been spent reading material that you have somehow touched and put your fingerprints on and put it into the world. Well, thank you. You know, Forbes is a great educational tool. I only have a political science degree from college, but I feel like Forbes gave me my MBA. And I think when you talk to people around the world, they feel the same thing, that Forbes has this degree of honesty about how businesses really work, how they're funded, how they grow, how they get into trouble in a way that, that resonates with a lot of people. And, and along the way, you get a terrific education of what to do and what not to do. Exactly. Exactly. And I spend a lot of time in airports. So I get to, you know, even if I don't have it at home, I get to peruse every single episode so or every single issue. So we'll talk about that. But you mentioned it a little bit. You have an interesting background, and it really coincides with what we're here today to talk about, which is this idea and your new book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. And I think there's a great kind of tie between you and this book, obviously, and why you wrote it. So could you give us a little brief you know, background and then uh, how it led you or, or enticed you to want to write about this epidemic of late bloomers? Well, thank you for asking. I certainly identify as a late bloomer myself. And in fact, it is something that I've thought about my entire life. And then the idea to turn it into a book only occurred about four years ago. But if you start in high school, you know, I barely made the top 20 
20th percentile in grades. I ranked something like 91st out of 520 people in my senior class. I went to my local junior college. Early bloomers don't usually go to junior colleges, but I did. But I was able to blossom a little bit, particularly in sports, which is my passion. I was captain of the cross-country team. I ran in the junior college nationals in, uh, in indoor track. And despite having you know pretty mediocre grades, really, the fact that I had those sports credentials got me into Stanford. Now, Stanford was easier to get into when I went than it is now by a long shot. They took about 20% of applicants. Today, they take 4% of applicants. But when I arrived at Stanford, I was way, way over my head. I really was kind of blown away by the rigor of the academic curriculum. And what happened was is that uh, taking classes that I could not comprehend, I defaulted when I was in the library. I, I just couldn't pay attention to classes I couldn't even begin to comprehend. And I started spending all my time at the library in the magazine stacks, the history of hardbound magazines was right there. And the magazine that I always loved in high school and beyond and still today is Sports Illustrated. So I started reading all the back issues of Sports Illustrated from its inception year in 1954 through the present. And you couldn't help but notice when you read Sports Illustrated, well, why, why is it that I love this magazine so much? I love the writing, I love the clever captioning, I love the typography, the photography, and I love the illustration. And anyway, you know, uh, while I was reading Sports Illustrated, I was not studying. I got crappy grades. Uh, my college roommates went off to graduate school. I went off to be a temporary typist, a security guard, uh, dishwasher, things like that. Uh, and only in my late 20s did my brain wake up. I got a job as a technical writer at a research institute. And then, then my whole brain sort of got to another level where I was able to think logically and rationally because I was working with engineers. The magazine part of this is that I had a friend who was a loan officer at Silicon Valley Bank. And he was noticing what I was doing on my Macintosh, doing desktop publishing, promotional work, uh, and technical writing. And he said, you know, he said, we're kind of two young, obscure guys in Silicon Valley. Let's be players. And I said, well, how are we going to be players? I'm a technical writer and an ad writer, and you're a low-ranking loan officer <laughs> at bank. And he said, why don't we do a magazine that would get people's attention? Can, you, can we do a magazine on a Mac with Quark Express, Adobe Fonts, and all of that? And I said, yeah, it's possible. So he was the businessman and, and real entrepreneur, even though we were 50-50 partners. But I was tasked with coming up with the product, the design, the, 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 the kind of stories we'd have, and the, and the general look and mood of it. And all of a sudden, it, it occurred to me, if we were going to create a really compelling Silicon Valley business magazine, it should look and read like Sports Illustrated. Because I found most business magazines to be boring. But sports magazines are not boring. Now, there is only one problem, and that is in sports magazines, you have photography that is really great because the reporters and the photographers are invited to the competition. Whereas in business, you know, what are the pivotal moments in a business? Is it when you decide to get into or exit a business? Is it when a key employee walks out of the door with all the IP in their head? And no photographers are on the scene for that. 
So you have to create it with illustration and cartoons of the kind that I so loved at Sports Illustrated. So within a year of launching Upside Magazine, by the way, my partner raised money from a venture capitalist who's become very well known, uh, Tim Draper. Um, but Tim was a young man also. And Tim gave my friend Tony enough money to quit his job at Silicon Valley Bank. And within a year, we had everybody's attention. Uh, I had Scott McNeely of Sun Microsystems on the cover as the anatomically detailed Michelangelo David sculpture. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> I had, uh, we called uh, uh, John Scully an unmentionable name um, and had him dressed up as a little Lord Fauntleroy in a sandbox, getting sand kicked on him. Uh, uh, Scully was the CEO of Apple at the time and considered in Silicon Valley not to be quite tough enough. And lo and behold, um, Bill Gates gave me four hours of interviews. Uh, people could not not pay attention to us. And so that got the attention of Forbes. We were getting longer interviews with people like Bill Gates than they were. Lo and behold, Steve Forbes and the chief financial officer of Forbes come out and visit us with the intent of buying us, but we were kind of a mess financially, and instead Steve hired me. So at a, at a, at a high-level position to launch a technology futurist magazine. So I got hired directly by Steve, reported to Steve Forbes, and, and, and got to do what I had already done, except with a much larger budget. Wow. And what I can say is that spending all that time in the magazine stacks at Stanford paid off. It didn't pay off in real time because I got crappy grades, because I was not doing my studies, but it paid off in the long run. And that's one of those ex examples, I think, of late blooming, that, that you don't, the things that you do, what late bloomers do uh, I think better than early bloomers is follow their curiosity. Now, that is not a good prescription for getting good SATs and grades, by the way. Uh, we're, we encourage kids to trade their curiosity for focus. And lo and behold, you do get, you know, early achievement when you do that. But you sacrifice something, I think, really important. That's the essential theme of the book is that, that if you didn't bloom early, don't sweat it. You know, you have many gifts to give. Let's embark on the process of discovery and find out what they are. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that. We, we're going to dive into this idea of being a late bloomer. Before we do that, one thing I wanted to talk about was just in a nutshell, for those of us that don't know, myself included, what does a publisher do at a major magazine? Like, what, what do you do? Do you just have a fancy title or are you really responsible for all of the content that goes out into the world? You know, you want to hear the honest truth. I and do. I do. Honest guy and your, your audience uh, likes honest answers. It's an inflated title. Uh, um, uh. Steve, what happened was, is I was editor of this technology futurist magazine called Forbes ASAP. The, the, uh, in 1998, the publisher of Forbes up and left for another opportunity, and they didn't have anyone to fulfill that position. And so Steve's brother, Tim, called me up and said, uh, we would like you to be the publisher. And I said, that's impossible. I said, a publisher is somebody to whom ad sales and all revenue reports to. Because the publisher, if you think of a movie, a publisher is like a producer, the business person. And then an editor is like the director, the content person. And I'd never run a sales force, anything like that. And they said, no, we have a different role in mind for you. We'd like to give you a column in the magazine which I ended up naming Innovation Rules. And we would like you to give speeches and really be 
you know, kind of the number two behind Steve Forbes in terms of how Forbes is represented out in the world. And so that's uh, that's what I did. And um, and that's what I've done since. Yeah. I do a lot of outside speeches. I write books. I sit on boards and advisory boards and I have this wonderful perch at Forbes. But to say that I have any responsibility would be a real insult to the people who really do, like <laughs> our, Mike Federley or our great editor, uh, Randall Lane. Hey, Chris, how long have we known each other? I think it's coming up on about 25 years. Do you actually know what I do for my job? Well, first, that would require us still talking to each other. But aside from that, I think something about managing, you manage like projects or people or technology. I actually have no idea what you do. Sure, sure. I manage teams and I have to build out teams. And you know what? Hiring is hard. It takes forever. You have to go through tons of applications and it's just this huge slog. And that's why I'm pumped to have ZipRecruiter sponsoring the show. So just head over to ZipRecruiter.com slash smart people. ZipRecruiter definitely makes hiring easy. It sends your jobs to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, and John, you probably already know this, but ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash smart people. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-M-A-R-T-P-E-O-P-L-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash smart people. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. And now back to me interviewing someone. Okay. Well, and I appreciate that because here's the thing. The older you get, the more things you do, and I'm, I'm really talking about my own experience, you realize that reality is not hardly ever what your perception is. And what I mean by that is a lot of the business world, it consists of, as you put it, overinflated titles. Not that it's not hard work. But you find most companies, most big successes are run by a lot of people doing a lot of hard work and a few who get the praise for it. Well, I, and I try to dish the praise off to wherever it's deserved. Um, our CEO, the brilliant ad sales team that's kept us alive in a tough environment, Randall Lane, the editor and the people report to him. Um, one of my colleagues called me the bubble in the Forbes org chart. So if you can imagine um, somebody, I, I would almost be like the, uh, um, uh, well, the, I guess a representative of Forbes because uh, the brothers uh, feel that I represent the values of Forbes very well. Um, that, that is, I embrace free market enterprise. I've thought about it deeply. Uh, I embrace the, what Forbes stands for is opportunity for as many as possible. I've become pretty adept at giving speeches out on the circuit. So it brings value to Forbes, but, but, I, don't, uh, but I have the luxury of not having to uh, report to anybody on a day-to-day -day basis. I get up every day and decide what to do. You know, you couldn't invent it. You couldn't invent a job like that, but I, but, um, but I did well enough. Uh, as the editor of Forbes ASAP, 
and when I was more of a real publisher in the beginning, that I still get to carry that title. Absolutely. I always tell the CEO of Forbes, I'm very happy to give up the title. It's 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 Forbes's title to give, not mine to own. Ah, I like it. Well, and you know, given your time spent obviously at Forbes, but in the magazine prior to that, the work you've done now, the books you've written, which this is your is this your third book? It'll be my fourth book. Fourth. I wrote a book okay. in 2001. I got my um, instrument certification in in uh, the piloting world. Right. And I bought a little Cessna 172 and flew around the country and developed a book that was part flying around the country, learned, you know, taking up flying and all the challenges that go with it, but also visiting really cool entrepreneurs and out of the way places. One of the people I met was Doug Burgum the founder of Great Plains Software in Fargo, North Dakota. He sold Great Plains to Microsoft some years later, and now he's the governor of North Dakota. And and another one uh, who followed a similar path, Greg Gianforti, who of uh, Bozeman, Montana, who had a at a company called uh, Right Now Technology. Oracle bought it, and now uh, now Greg is a congressman from Montana. Well, and what I was wondering about all of the work and content you put out in the world, especially in your, your experience with magazines, there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are content creators of some sort. And I'm wondering, what have you learned about getting the attention of customers through things like images, titles, and content? If, if you could give you know a couple minutes of advice to people out there, blogging, writing, vlogging, whatever it is, on how to get people's attention and deliver what they need, what would you say? I would say that look at the things that you are attracted to in the media world, uh, from print to uh, YouTube, uh, to online content, to television, to movies, to sports. Think about all the, all the opportunities for eyes and ears to engage with something, we generally go to things that we really like to do. And when you really like something, then make a study of it. I'm a great believer in the idea of apprenticeship. If you like a certain film director, go deep on that film director to discover what it is that you like about it. And even if you're not in film, but in something, some other media field, what lessons can you learn from a great film director and bring over into your own medium? Mm. And, the, and, and so I've had this lucky uh, opportunity because of working at Forbes that I've, I've gotten to see things up close. I worked uh, back in the 90s, the great writer Tom Wolfe, you know, uh, who wrote The Right Stuff, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. And all of those, um, I was a great fan of Tom Wolf, and I ended up getting to work with them. And uh, he did a 9,000-word piece for us at Forbes ASAP. And it took him multiple drafts, and he did it on a typewriter in triple space and would fax us to us. So I got to see the craftsmanship of Tom Wolf in real time. And I learned a lot about that. Why is Tom Wolf's prose so compelling, so addicting, so memorable? Well, there's a methodology that he employs, you know, something of his own making. Um, but it's not just pure talent. It's pure talent plus craftsmanship. So uh, I already mentioned the Sports Illustrated example. What could I take from Sports Illustrated that would have application in a business magazine? So I would my advice is who are your heroes 
and then really go deep on your heroes, make a study of your heroes and deconstruct what it is exactly that you like about that. And how can you transfer that to the things that you that you want to accomplish? I really love that advice because we get it often in regards to podcasting and things. Oh, what should I do? How do I make my podcast great? And we've been lucky to have success. And I think a lot of that comes from this idea. I just built a podcast that I want to do or I would want to listen to. And that's it, you know? And so I always kind of, if you can be your customer, I think it helps because you go, would I like that? And I know a lot of people get caught up on, well, find your avatar, you know, define who's listening. And, and that is very important. But in the end, if you're making something that doesn't resonate with you, doesn't appeal to you, you don't think needed to be out there, why should anyone else? I could not agree with you more. Yeah. And what you've said, I think, really accords with what Steve Jobs always said, that he, he discounted the value of market research, which is all that analytical stuff that you talked about in the podcast world. Mm -hmm. And he created the kind of products that he himself would want to use. And of course, Steve Jobs had one foot in, in, in the Silicon Valley tech community of the 1970s, and he had one value in the kind of hippie community uh, also of the 1970s. And so he was able to put science and humanity and a real strong aesthetic together in what became Apple and is still Apple today, seven years after his death. By the way, Chris, mm -hmm. the word that Steve Jobs always used uh, to describe that whole package of left side, right side brain thinking and, and aesthetics was the word taste which I found is really interesting. He didn't call it aesthetics. He didn't call it design. He called it taste. As in, you know, we have good taste and company X doesn't have good taste. Uh, I just thought it was boiling it down to a single word like that. And then all, everything that flows out of that, there's this famous story that he, that he, that he told. I think Walter Isaacson in his uh, magnificent biography on, on Jobs wrote about it. The Jobs' adoptive father used to take him to junkyards or not not junkyards but garage sales and they would look at furniture in garage sales and steve's adopted father paul jobs would say you know would teach steve to look on the part of the furniture that the eye wouldn't see the inside because the inside would tell you whether the craftsman and the builder of that furniture really cared about their product or not. That's a good one. And I read that biography and I'm trying to remember that story, but it is a, th it's a big book. I mean, there's a lot to remember yeah, that, yeah. but it is a great one. You know what? It might've been another, uh, another book, but, but, but I do vividly recall that story because I think that, you know, uh, Steve jobs, it was that level of detail that, that, uh, you know, that the Apple product should really emote the pride of the craftsmanship and the people who created it absolutely in a way that you got emotionally. And of course he would drive people crazy, um, holding people to those standards. But, uh, th that's what he was all about. I think Elon Musk, you know, right out of the mold of Steve jobs for all his gifts and all the flaws. Um, and we're seeing a lot of the flaws right now, but I think Elon Musk creates the kind of products that he himself gets really excited about. Chris, this week's sponsor is Myro. They sent us some deodorant. Have you been using it? Well, it's funny you should ask, John. So actually, of course, I have. I'm a big fan of how it's plant-powered and it's natural and all that. So I gave it a shot and I liked it so much, I actually left it on our dining room table so I could just randomly use it throughout the day. 
And I'm not kidding. At one point I was putting it on. I dropped it, got a little bit on the floor. And because I'm sort of lazy, I just left the little bit of residue on the floor, a little bit of white residue. And my wife walks by and she says, Chris, what's this white stain on our floor? I don't, I don't know. I really don't know what it is. So of course, like any, any great wife does, she leans down and she smells it, which is weird. And she goes, wow, that smells really good. Did you get a new deodorant? And that's kind of when I knew that this is going to be my new go-to deodorant. Myro is making deodorant better, like 10 times better. Not the drugstore stuff with the meh sense you're used to. I've been using it too. It's a subscription service. And in your first box, Myro sends you a refillable case and a scent to put in the case. What's awesome about this, because the case is refillable, Myro refills reduce plastic waste by approximately 50% versus your typical drugstore deodorants. So to begin your subscription, here's what you do. You head over to their website. You choose from five cents and five case colors. You'll get one case and one pod in your first $10 starter kit to try for 30 days. After 30 days, you'll receive three deodorant pod refills every three months delivered straight to your door, conveniently timed for when most people run out. Each pod is approximately a one-month supply. Also, I have to say that I love the fact that there's no aluminum, no parabens, no talc, mineral oil, or triclosan. The ingredients are clinically tested for safety. So, get 50% off your first order and get started today for just five bucks. Visit mymyro.com smart and use promo code smart. That's mymyro.com smart and use promo code smart. Now let's get back into this interview. Yeah, and that'll be an interesting thing as we talk about late bloomers because I also always hesitate to hold up people such as Steve Jobs or Elon Musk as the shining light of success simply because I think they hit a bar that is not just unreachable for many, but also unhealthy for many. I mean, if you look at the the really the life of Steve Steve Jobs is chronicled by many people and Elon Musk as well, I'd say they very clearly exude success in one area, but very clearly fail or at least do not succeed in another. You have any thoughts on that? Well, I would make a contrary point about Steve Jobs. I think everything you've said is correct. But when you look at how flawed Steve Jobs was as an executive from the time of Apple's founding in 1976 to his exit in 1985, and then, uh, then you look at the Steve Jobs from 96 or 97, the year he came back, up until his death in, the, you know, in October 2011. And he was vastly improved as a CEO. The first time around, and you see this uh, uh, sadly a little bit with Musk today, the first time around, Steve Jobs really didn't quite trust uh, the, the very people that he had hired to do their jobs. The second time around, you know, he hired people like designer Johnny Ive, operations guru Tim Cook, and he let them do their job. And Apple is thriving today because Tim Cook has grown from operations into a CEO, CEO role, and Johnny Ive is still a great designer. My, a lot of my, but, but you are right, Silicon Valley, particularly today. Now, you know, if somebody came down from Mars and looked at what was going on in Silicon Valley today, they'd say, where is the silicon? 
Uh, nothing, <laughs> nothing really gets built here. It would be algorithmic value or something like that. And that's what that's even exacerbated this trend that if you're going to succeed in algorithmic valley, whether it's out here in Northern California or in Seattle or in, in a different manifestation in Wall Street and, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut with with high frequency trading operations, you know, that that has put the pressure on kids to get if if they want to get those jobs there's a clear path they have to score great on their SATs particularly the math portion they have to go to elite schools or you won't get looked at by the venture capitalist if you went to you know some obscure school in the midwest or some school that was thought of as a as a backup to a backup and so tremendous pressure on people to be early bloomers in in what is silicon valley today and that's and, and I write about that, and I think that it's put pressure on kids that is really unhealthy. There, uh, in the 2014-2015 school year uh, in Palo Alto, Palo Alto's two public high schools and it's uh, and a private school called Castalea for girls. There were six suicides, and there were uh, more than 40 um, hospitalizations for quote unquote suicide ideation. And as people research this horrible problem. The, the main theme that came up was that the kids felt under tremendous pressure. One of the suicides had talked about how exhausted he was having to get up at 3.30 in the morning to stay ahead of his advanced placement courses and his SAT prep. So that, that, that is, that, that something has gone wrong here. Yeah. We've gone from the era of the tinkerer in the garage to the person who must demonstrate uh, that they're capable of getting into MIT, but to do doing that starting at around age 12. So, you know, you look for late bloomers in other fields, and there are many. One of the people I write about who was a hero to me, um, being a San Francisco 49ers fan, was the coach, uh, great coach Bill Walsh. At age, uh, Bill Walsh wasn't a head coach of any significant program until he was 46. When he was 35, he was uh, the off, uh, running backs coach for the Oakland Raiders in 1966 or 65. And then in 1966, he'd fallen so far that he was the coach of a semi-professional team called the San Jose Apaches. They, they, they played, the players got paid $50 a night. They were bar bouncers. They were, you know, pro wannabes who never would be. Um, they played against teams like the Eugene Bombers in crappy college stadiums, and they practiced on a high school football field. Well, one day um, at the conclusion of practice, Walt, uh, Walsh heard some um, shouting and some whistles. And, and he walked over and it was coming from the high school gym. And he saw the high school basketball team playing uh, or practicing inbounding a ball against a full court press. And, and, and how you would do that is th with screens and, you know, fake moves. And, and if you know... Uh, uh, if you know how to inbound a ball against a full court press, uh, you can do it about 90% of the time successfully. And all of a sudden he had this insight that could I transfer what I've just seen here, inbounding the ball against a full court press in basketball, what would that look like in football? And the whole genesis of what became the West Coast offense that is still used today, which is high percentage shorter passes, the occasional long bomb, but mostly higher percentage, shorter passes, grew out of this totally from left field. And he applied it, you know, as uh, offensive coordinator for the Cincinnati Bengals when he had a weak-armed quarterback 
who had played high school basketball. Um, but he still bounced around, and he finally he gets his opportunity at Stanford, where he's head coach, has a couple of reasonably good years, and then and then he becomes head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, who had gone two and fourteen the year before. And he saw the value of drafting Joe Montana out of Notre Dame. Now, the, Montana was only the uh, fifth or sixth quarterback taken in his draft class because the rap on Montana, even though he was a winner at Notre Dame, is that he was too skinny and he had a weak arm. But Walsh had noticed that in high school he was an all-state basketball player. In fact, Jim Valvano, uh, the famous basketball coach at North Carolina State back in the day, had offered Montana a full scholarship as a point guard. Now, point guards are people who can see the whole court. And a quarterback in Walsh's scheme had to be able to see the whole field, all the different reads. If, if receiver number one wasn't open, you go to two, then you go to three, then you go to four. And, um, and it takes a certain kind of peripheral vision and calm under pressure and to, to, to be able to do that. But that was the kind of quarterback he wanted. Needless to say, in Montana, he picked the perfect quarterback and the rest is history and but here Walsh wasn't head coach of the 49ers until his late 40s I want to kind of define this idea of late bloomers in the book you talk about it you give it a really nice definition but the primary thing is who achieved their level of success or fulfilled their success later than expected and that expectation Talking about where it comes from, because obviously the person you were referring to who was up at 3.30 in the morning preparing for their AP classes, most of the time that expectation at that age is not something they put on themselves, but that is put upon them. Can you talk about that? Because I think when you say Silicon Valley went from garage tinkerers to these folks who are so concerned, I mean, it really sounds like it's the very people who made Silicon Valley what it is that are now forcing this idea of you have to do it early on everyone else. Yeah, it's become that way. Uh, the great Tom Wolf, whom I mentioned, wrote a piece for Esquire magazine in 1983 called The Tinkerings of Robert Noyce. Uh, Bob Noyce was a uh, co-founder of Intel, um, a, a great uh, uh, you know, entrepreneur, one of the Hall of Famers of of Silicon Valley, a, a person who created the defining Silicon firm in, in the age of Silicon in Silicon Valley. But think about that word tinker and think about the idea that, that Noyce grew up in a small town in Iowa and think about the fact that he went to a small uh, church, uni church college in Iowa. You know, nobody would have targeted Bob Noyce for what, what eventually he became. The idea of late bloomer is that, 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 to really bloom, you have to put together your native talents with your, with your, with your passion. And even passion, uh, there's a better word out there, I think. Uh, I like to use the word mission because mission is a passion you will sacrifice for. Uh, a passion, sometimes that's ephemeral. You know, I feel passionate about this Netflix series or I feel passionate about um, this food um, enthusiasm that I picked up. Well, that's not something that you would necessarily sacrifice your heart and soul for. But if you can marry your native talents to your deeper sense of mission, you will bloom. But who's to tell you when that's going to happen? You know, what, what, what you described with these kids in, in Palo Alto is external goals. And you can't really bloom for the long run if you're re responding to goals that other people have set for you. 
A few people will be able to, I grant you that, but most will, uh, most will, will burn out or they'll self-sabotage or they'll find that their careers peaked in their, you know, at age 28. Now that's pretty tragic when we're all living longer lives and we're going to have to reinvent ourselves more frequently anyway in this highly disruptive economy that's not going to get any less disruptive. So the idea is, what are your native gifts um, and where can you marry them to your sense of mission that just goes beyond a fleeting passion of the day? And that, that, that is a process of discovery. And some people are fortunate to discover that marriage of, of talent and mission early. Some people it's going to be later. I described how I suddenly got it uh, in my 30s when the, the, the passion I felt around great uh, magazines like Sports Illustrated became a mission when I was uh, a co-founder of a business magazine and, uh, and I was able to put the two things together. And it happened later for me than it happened for, for most people. Um, and I was very fortunate. So what I'm really hoping for with Late Bloomers, the book, is to start a national conversation that says, look, there, we, are, we, are, we are turning our backs on the majority of people out there who are going to, who, who, for whom this discovery process is simply going to take longer. And we've got to have more avenues of discovery. Uh, and that's, that's what this book is is all about. I, there's a little bit of anger uh, that I show in this book. When you when you look at, well, what is this thing called the SAT? How did it become so preeminent? Um, you know, the founder, Carl Brigham, invented it in, out of Princeton University in 1926, and he was very open about uh, the idea that it was basically a longer, more practical version of the IQ test, which the U.S. imported from France, where it was invented. Lewis Terman at Stanford did that in 1908. And the bad seed of these early intelligence testers is that to a person, they were affiliated with the eugenics movement. So right off the bat, the IQ test had this built-in bias toward it that was uh, unfavorable for people not who weren't Northern Europeans. Now, I'm saying this not as a political liberal, by the way. I'm saying this as somebody who leans to the other side, who always thought the liberal argument against the IQ test and the SAT was just uh, you know, utopian. Mm -hmm. But the more you look into this, the more you see they have a point. They do have a point about that. And so I really think it's important that, that uh, for people whose gifts aren't surfaced by the SAT and AP courses, well, where are their gifts? Where, where will they surface? And we've got to have more um, avenues of discovery, I believe, for that to happen. This week's episode is brought to you by Cove. Cove is on a mission to make migraines less of a headache. Anyone who's had a migraine headache knows that they're the absolute worst. The last thing that you want to do is go into a doctor's office. So with Cove, you can get treatment from home. From the convenience of your own home, a doctor reviews your symptoms and determines what is the best course of treatment for you. Your personalized supply of medication is delivered directly to your door. With Cove, there is no medical insurance necessary. The cost for your doctor consultation in the first month treatment is $30 with or without medical insurance. Living with migraines is a hassle. Sometimes you wonder, is this just a headache? Is it a migraine? Who knows? Well, Cove has you covered. Cove offers education on the symptoms of migraines, what may cause migraines, and other frequently asked questions, breaking down everything you need to know about migraine headaches and migraine treatment. And lastly, Cove offers FDA-approved medication. They offer both acute and preventative medications 
and all migraine medication prescribed by Cove's doctors is FDA-approved. So listen up. If you suffer from migraine headaches, the last thing you need is to wait to see a doctor. With Cove, there's finally a way to get the help you need when you need it. For a limited time, you'll get your doctor consultation and first month of treatment for just $30, no medical insurance required. Visit withcove.com smart. That's W-I-T-H-C-O-V-E dot com slash smart. So get started today. Head over to withcove.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. Yeah, and you know, I, and I read your book and it's fantastic. I got an early copy and I, you know, totally felt that animosity towards things like the IQ test and SATs. And what I found interesting and, and it paralleled that, it also... I felt a little optimistic about is the one good thing or, or one of many good things that comes from this information society, the web and all that is you can succeed on your own. Now, most of the gatekeepers have been removed. And the point being, for example, I never felt a sense of pressure to re like go to that Ivy league school because I always thought I have the talent somewhere um, to do what I believe is important, to find work that I believe is important. And when I get that, I can make it happen on my own. I don't have to go work for, you know, an investment bank or something like that. That was the thought in the back of my mind. And I think hopefully that is a source of optimism for those that feel like maybe I didn't bloom in high school, but I know I can do it on my own with the resources available to all of us. That's an inspirational statement. Uh, I don't know your background, but I have to, without uh, sight unseen, give your parents an A plus if they <laughs> an attitude for you that allowed you that sense of ownership about your own life, and that 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 they had faith in you, that you had faith in your own talent, and and that you would put it to good work. So you see something different. Well, what I see is I think that I think the kids get demoralized. Mm. I think when you see a boy. Um, who becomes a young man and is failing to launch, uh, you look at the history of that boy, and you know what? Their talents and gifts were not aligned with school, and they felt like simpletons. They were made to feel that way, and they checked out. And um, some of them take your path, and uh, I'm not to call you a simpleton or to say no, no, anything, no. Yeah. Uh, but uh, maybe if I true. knew you, I would call you a simpleton. <laughs> yeah, probably but, true. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I this interview too much. You can call me a simpleton, too. <laughs> But 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 they get demoralized. Not all of them have that internal fortitude or vision or burning light that you did. And so they end up feeling, well, you know, I'm a loser. And without, you know, without realizing that there's so many avenues that would reveal that they're winners. Now, you have to take ownership for this for sure. Um, you know, you, the, the, the fact that society is tilting against late bloomers in general, at least in education and at least in the software and financial services industries, is it, it's, it, it's undeniably true right now when you look at when you look at the facts of the situation. But even if it's tilting against you and you're a late bloomer, you still own your life. And what I hope to do with this book is really first make people a little agitated that we've so overshot in this direction uh, of defining algorithmic excellence as the only kind of excellence that matters in school and early employment. And then, you know, balance it out with this idea, you have so many latent gifts, let's get on a path of discovery and see what they may be. 
And the latter half of the book is saying, you know, some of us have to clear out the weeds here. Uh, some of the weeds may be self-doubt. The weeds may be maybe you're in the wrong uh, culture. Uh, maybe the friends and acquaintances that you have are perpetuating this idea that you'll never amount to anything. Mm. Uh, maybe, you know, there, there are these things that many people will have to deal with. And no, I don't think they should run off. They, they should go see a shrink while living in their parents' basement trying to work this out. I think that they need to take responsibility for their lives, but, but, but at least to point them in the direction. Look, if you feel crappy about yourself, you know, here's what to do about it. If you feel plagued by self-doubt, that's okay. You know, learn to replace it with self-efficacy. Learn to, ha you know, learn the habit of achieving one victory at a time and then expanding the field of expertise and confidence that you can, you can employ to expand it even more. I mean, there are ways, there are ways out of the trap for people who feel like they were done, uh, you know, done under by, uh, by the school system and by, uh, you know, uh, the pressures to get a, get a job at a highfalutin company. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that. I know we have three minutes left, but I think this is really critical. You've touched on it multiple times, but this is the thing that I enjoyed about the book that you've stated. And, and for example, the one chapter you just mentioned, the superpower that is self-doubt, right? As somebody who I, I always felt that I would get to a certain level, but really struggled on getting there because I was a late Bloomer. I mean, at 27, I probably had the maturity of about a 20 year old. It was just clear. And so there you go. Yeah, High five to you. Yeah, High five, Chris. Yeah. I know I resonated with that. And I know a lot of people who do and they say, but I feel like I have something inside me or I'll get there, but it's just not happening now. I think that is at the core of all late bloomers is you want it to happen faster. And, and that's what your subtitle is, the power of patience. And what you advocate for is the same thing as by the way, I'm a certified coach. I've done career coaching. You here's what you've said. And, and in two minutes, you can kind of uh, finalize this thought for me, but curiosity and the ability to look for what sparks you is just as, if not more important than the formal education. And if you do not give yourself time for that curiosity and that searching and that play, you will not create or at least sustain what your passion is. So in the last two minutes, if you were to kind of follow up on that and talk to people out there who are feeling like they cannot wait, what would you say? I would say get in the game and get on the path of discovery, even if you feel self-doubt about yourself. Uh, the way that you dispel self-doubt is to get busy, uh, to start discovering the things you like to do. And then what are the possible avenues where you can marry your passion with your talents and your passion becomes a sense of mission so, by God, you've got momentum now going forward. In fact, you're so in love with what you're doing that you feel not pushed uh, by outside factors. You feel pulled toward your destiny. You know, uh, everybody has a, uh, a supreme destiny. I'm ripping off the words of Oprah Winfrey, whom I admit that maybe I wouldn't have even read before I started doing the research for this book. It wasn't the kind of books that I read. But I love her words, everybody has a supreme destiny. Go out, be curious, discover what it is. When you begin to find what it is, there are ways of overcoming self-doubt, and there are ways of developing resilience, because you're going to need it. If your passion's going to turn into mission, you know, you're going to have to be tough. But let that toughness develop because you're pursuing your destiny. If you're pursuing your destiny, if you're really marrying your mission with your talents, 
all of those things that you think you don't have today, expertise, um, guts, fortitude, salesmanship, whatever it is, they will be given to you. They will be given to you if you're on the right path. I love it. Well, and for those out there who are saying, look, I'm fired up, but what do I do? I think it's a great place to say the book goes into much greater depth on everything we've discussed. So go pick it up. The book is Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. We will link to that at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And it comes out, I would only add, uh, the book releases on April 16th, 2019. Mm -hmm. You can pre-order it on Amazon today. My goal is to build a website that not only promotes the book, but promotes the movement. I want to create a discussion and a movement where late bloomers and people who suspect that they might be late bloomers want to go to get the inspiration and nourishment uh, they feel they need. Perfect. Well, Rich, again, I got to let you go, but I really appreciate your time. I love the book. I love what you stand up for and represent here as a fellow late bloomer. So thank you. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Chris. This is a, this was just a fascinating 45 minutes. I really appreciate you giving me this time. Absolutely. All right. Have a great day, Rich. Thank you. You bet. All right. Bye-bye. Another episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Rich Carlgaard. Rich's book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement, can be found wherever books are sold. All right, time for some quick housekeeping. If you'd ever like to reach out to Smart People Podcast, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you'd like to support the show, please head over to Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. There you can pledge different monthly support amounts and get some pretty cool perks in return. As always, you don't have to support us financially, and the easiest way to support us is head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review for the show. If you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, you can head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for the housekeeping, and that's it for us this week. So make sure you stay tuned. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode.